then I'm going to unpack the narrative as we go through and hopefully by God's grace uh, be able to apply some principles uh, to the Christian life uh, as it's seen in Scripture that we too would, would benefit from this uh, reading of God's Word today. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 19. <clears throat> I believe I'm reading from the New King James Version. <clears throat> Jeremiah four nineteen reads, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, Oh, my soul. The sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. In this verse, the commentator Adam Clark notes, from this particular verse, he says, to the 29th verse, the prophet here describes the ruin of Jerusalem and the desolation of Judea by the Chaldeans in language and in imagery in this particular verse, in the language and the imagery of this verse, scarcely paralleled in the whole entire Bible. Matthew Henry writes, the prophet is here in agony. Get this picture, brothers and sisters. And cries out like one upon the rack of pain with some acute distemper or as a woman in travail. Another translation boils it down to this, distemper and deranged. Why such graphic imagery and intensity, we may ask, of this language that Jeremiah is using? In other words, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with Jeremiah? What is this pain that he's experiencing? What was this burden and this agony that the that is shown to be likened to the volcanic, volcanic throes of a woman in travail? And women, you know, if you've ever been in travail delivering a child, it's a pain that is almost indescribable to explain to another person if they haven't lived through that. Right? Correct? That's probably one of the worst pains my wife says has ever existed. She said it was so, I mean, she said, I'd never want to go through that again. But as the Bible says that a, a woman forgets that pain because of the beauty of her baby, right? So they, God allows them to go through that sometimes. Like we, many times, we've actually had nine children. Two of our boys were deceased. So my wife's been through a lot of childbearing and she understands that, listen, if Jeremiah is going through similar pain of a woman in travail, something is happening to this man that may be indescribable to all of us who read these verses. And if we're not careful, and we have the Bible, but we have great commentators that know the Word of God in the original languages and able to flesh this out and bring this to the forefront so we, as God's people, can get a better understanding because we can read through these verses, we can get excited, we can see the intensity and the energy coming from Jeremiah. It's pretty obviously that he's in pain, but in order for us to to get a picture of that and to identify that in some way they relate that to childbearing pain and this is or, or being even on the rack of pain you guys can remember days in your life where you've had the most severe pain in your life and you didn't think you were going to make it through it but somehow you did 
And it's very difficult sometimes trying to explain that pain to other people. Well, here's the answer of why he was going through that particular pain. Well, first of all, his nation had fallen under the wrath and under the judgment of God. His people were on the verge of desolation. Jeremiah's heart was not just breaking for his people, but his heart was breaking for his God. It's a beautiful place to be. The intensity of this verse should strike us deeply. God's anger is provoked because his name is being continually trampled upon Not by the world. It happens in the world. Unregenerate people trample upon the name of Christ all the time because it's in their inherent nature to do so. But it's quite another thing when people who call themselves the people of God that will walk in a way that's contrary to being born again and they trample upon the word of God. They disobey him and they become covetous idolatry filled and greedy lustful all these things they start walking in a way that doesn't represent god god doesn't save us for our holiness brothers and sisters our holiness isn't the goal of our life christ is Many people will turn religion or you see fundamentalism. They'll, they'll put these particular laws into place to somehow try to, try to show you what holiness looks like to the point to where all you do is focus on your holiness, but you're not focused on Christ. That becomes your Christ. This is very similar to what Israel was doing. They had the name, right? They had the fact that they could declare, we are God's chosen People, He has selected us out from the world to be his special people, but we certainly are not living that way. And God is more concerned about his name than he is yours. Trust me. God wants to save a person to be glorified through that person. Not so that person has such beautiful holiness that they could put up on God's shelf so God can look at his little trophy all day and say, wow, what a godly man or woman. You know, we're not saved just for our holiness. We're saved to be utilized and used by God. Our holiness is only an extent of God's use in our lives. We repent of our sin. We want to live godly. We want to obey God. Why? Because we want Him to be able to use us in greater measure. Not for our glory, but for His glory. And this is what biblical holiness... This is where you got all these holiness churches and you go there and all they do is focus on the size of your dress, how long your dress is, whether you've got head coverings on, whether you're doing things a certain way, and all these things will describe your holiness and they're all fixated on it. Every false religion is fixated on a set of rules that somehow, if you follow those, you are better than everybody else. You see this in all types of religions and you definitely see it with Israel. And the intensity of this verse should strike us deeply. It should move us to say, what about me, Lord? How is my life? It's easy to call a preacher a legalist when he starts bringing up the sins of a church or his church, right? But I'm talking about my own life as well. I'm bringing my own life under the microscope this morning as well and asking myself, Lord, where do I need to improve? Am I walking contrary to your ways? Have I allowed the world all around me and all the voices of the world, the clamoring voices, to kind of manipulate me and seduce me and bewitch me to where I start getting in a position where I'm just like the world? It's a slow fade, right? And the next thing you know, you find yourself living in a way that you never even realized, how in the world did I get here? What happened? 
So a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and next thing you know, you are endorsing everything that God hates. And this is how we understand Jeremiah's anguish, quite rightly so. That's true biblical anguish. We should all be in anguish, just over our personal sin, yes, but also the sin that we see in the church. Not as a legalistic fashion, we want to beat someone up because they're not as holy as you are, but you want to be broken in anguish because you love God's people. It's a brokenness and an anger that comes from love. I love God's people, but they're walking contrary to our Lord. But I love God more, and I'm willing, as we'll begin to see, to step out. Jeremiah stepped into a very negative ministry, very confrontational ministry. He did not live his best life now, right? And his, his life was really characterized by a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And I believe when God uses a man to that extent, there will be a level of discomfort in that man's life, to put it lightly, to sanctify him and transform him more fit for the Master's use. I believe the level of, of ministry that you are called to, there will be a level of tribulations and trials that will, will God will use to carve you into that person to be able to be put into that position to do it rightly. And this is why I see people jump into things and they, they want to be this or that. And they're not even, they're not even, they've grown, they haven't even grown in grace. And they want to be the pastor. Or they want to be this, they want to be that. And then they get up there and then what happens? Their head goes like this, right? And this is why Paul said don't lay your hands on, on these men too quickly. Because you're going to ruin them and they're going to shipwreck their faith. Jeremiah 9 verse 1 says, Oh that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night, day and night, cry for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah was raised up during the reign of the last kings prior to his nation being carried into the Babylonian captivity. The call to be a prophet came to Jeremiah in 625 B.C. And he was active throughout the reigns of the last four kings of Judah and continued sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Some suggest that Jeremiah was somewhere around 13 to 16 years of age when the Lord started giving him his word that we read in Jeremiah 1, that we didn't read, but it's in Jeremiah 1.6 where he says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Jeremiah was called by God to the prophetic office during the darkest days of, the, of Old Testament history. I mean, you, gotta th you really got to take this into consideration when you're called into a work of any, any shape, form, right? That, you know, most of the time, I mean, obviously people are called to do the Lord's work since time began but a lot of times you're going to find that when you're when, when i'm not saying waiting for your calling you know we've all know exactly what we're supposed to do as christians just by reading the bible but there is particular compartmentalized callings for individuals that god does raise up to do certain tasks but in this you know in this um you know we just have to um have the understanding that god does raise us up 
in very dark times. Even in the dark days that we live in today are very similar to what was going on in the days of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah really is the perfect book to read concerning our day. As, as the sins and the idolatry and all the things that were going on. And Jeremiah is calling himself. You know how he reflects Christ. He's a type of Christ, you know, the, the, the weeping prophet, you know. And I just love that. Um, but we see that he was called during, come in at some of the most darkest times of history. And dark days command a certain type of ministry. The kingdom of Israel was some... 150 years gone from the scene when Jeremiah was born. The only kingdom left when Jeremiah was recruited by God for his mission was the kingdom of Judah. So when Jeremiah lived, the house of Israel had been long scattered among the Gentile nations some 150 years previously. They were powerless with no identity and no longer a recognized people or kingdom. When Jeremiah arrived, and only the house of Judah or the Jews were the visible remnant of the once combined nation of Israel left for the world to see. So you kind of get an idea and a picture of kind of what's going on. It's always a wonderful thing when we can, we can, we can bring some of these things to light so we can step in, in our minds, right? And, and step into this and kind of understand where Jeremiah was going and what he was called into, where he came from, some of the challenges that God had put in his life purposely, you know, and a man, remember, that was being spoken to directly by God. I mean, you can only imagine the type of, you know, um, pain. I mean, I think of, I think of this anyways. I mean, think about this. I mean, in those days, you know, God you know, would, would fill them with his spirit, but God would speak to them, right? And he would anoint them for a purpose, but God is speaking to them, speaking to them audibly, right? And, and there's this pathos of God. There's an exchange there where God is allowing the prophet to feel the pain of God himself when it comes to God's people. And it, it's this reality of being a, just a, a human being talking and hearing God, what that would be like. You know, what that, would, what that would do to you personally as a human being living. He was a man just like us. He wasn't a superhero. He was a human being, a fallen human being that God was using to be a mouthpiece to speak his word to his fallen, backslidden people. And here we go. And Jeremiah had to literally take on the pathos, the feeling of God, how God saw these people. And he felt as God felt towards these people. And that would have been a shattering experience for any human being to embody. Very difficult. And this is where Jeremiah steps on the scene. He was called out as a child. Just didn't know how to speak. God promised him that he would give him the ability to speak. You know, and there's there times you could see even the apprehension before he stood up in front of these people and began to denounce them, Right? And he's not denouncing the passerbys in a worldly sense where he's being evangelistic. He's calling them to the character of God. This is who God is. And this is who you are. You have strayed. You've walked away from God. You keep coming into the temple and, re and reciting these same phrases because you're so used to the language, but you've lost God. That's a dangerous place to be. You can see people have got the Bible memorized. They pray three hours a day. They, they, they preach on the streets. They do all these great things, right? 
But they don't know God. They don't know God. It's become an idol factory for them. Doing these things is central to them. Nothing wrong with having all these things if they're in their proper place. They're beautiful. And I believe that they're part of the Christian life and experience. But the reality is you can't trust in these things as your salvation. It always must be turning and living for Christ. It is also true that the sins of Judah in Jeremiah's day were exactly the same sins of Israel, whom God scattered among the nations by Assyria more than a century prior to Jeremiah's birth. All this stuff was going on, it's interesting, and God had prepared a man right from birth of what he was going to do. God prepares all men and women from birth. Don't get me wrong, but you can just see what had happened with this situation that was going on a long time before Jeremiah came aboard. And it's interesting how God had a child at some level compared to all of these full-grown men living in ways that were terribly ungodly and wicked. And there's a child at the gates standing on his soapbox and at the gates denouncing their sins would have been the most offensive thing that would probably cross their mind who is this punk up here you know it'd be like us today hearing some teenage kid preach the word of god to us and we're living in terrible sin but because we're older than him we've walked with the lord longer than him we think that he's a disgrace and shouldn't be telling us anything it becomes quite offensive god tells jeremiah to address part of his testimony against long ago the scattered house of Israel and not just against Judah. He says, I will pronounce judgment on my people for all their evil, the deserting me and worshiping other gods. Yes, they worship idols. They themselves have made. Which we read in Jeremiah 1.16. Listen to the word of the Lord, <clears throat> people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Now this is Jeremiah. What sins did your ancestors find in me that led them to stray for? They worshipped foolish idols only to become foolish themselves. Jeremiah 2.5 The characteristics of Jeremiah's ministry is seen in what I have titled this message to be is Jeremiah's boiling point. This, what I mean by that is that there is a place and a time in all of our lives where we get fed up with seeing something happen over and over and over again. And God, by His power, allows us to become His chosen vessel for this particular work. And we have to go into these areas trusting in the Lord and doing what He has called us to do. We all have reached a boiling point at some level. No, we're not to be continually in, 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 a, in a level of eruption all of our lives that's crazy but the point is we all have had those moments where there is a transition point to your life you ever got to that point where you see something going on in someone else's life you're not being a pharisee you're not being legalistic you're being a godly mature christian that sees a sin and then the lord basically is pressing you you need to call this person out and then you do it and then you get rejected Right? And not only rejected, you get hounded and you get harassed and they're not getting any sleep. And next thing you know, you're not hungry anymore. And you're just in, literally like in a pool of misery until this thing passes. You know, it's very similar, you know, to this idea to where we have to reach the pinnacle of sometimes we see a lot of evil going on around us, right? 
all this crazy stuff. But there's got to come a point where you get sick and tired of it to the point where you start speaking up about it. We've just been silent too long as a church. And if we're not careful, we can turn everything into a glorified ritual system. Where we just do these things, do these things, and the whole thought in our mind is that we don't care about what's going on in the world. We don't care about the sins that are going on or all these things that are coming against Christianity. We just write it off under God's sovereignty and just let it be what it is and do absolutely nothing. When children are being attacked, children are being sexualized by some of these stores, things are happening, and we just twiddle our thumbs and care less. There's got to come a point where something inside of you sees something and sparks something to such an extent where you hit your boiling point and you begin to start confronting it, even at the cost of your reputation, the cost of your finances, the cost of anything that you're willing to take on and be able to confront it, even at the cost of your own life. And this is exactly where we find Jeremiah. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish, he says. Oh, my heart. Some, some, some of uh, the translations say, oh, my bowels. Why do they use this translation? Because it's felt in the stomach. You know how it is when you're, when you're angry. You feel all in your stomach, right? Or you're in love, right? I've been there. All in the tummy, right? I remember I met my wife for the first time. I was like sick for a month. I couldn't eat. I was so in love. I felt it all right here. But there is really that sense to where the Bible is trying to communicate where we feel things. And it's in the bowels, right? I mean, I don't want to really use that word today. You mentioned bowels behind the pulpit. Everybody gets distracted, right? So, but you say heart, my heart, and that makes it seem to land better. Because I want you to really understand where his brokenness is coming from and his pain is coming from so we get a better idea as his people asking God. I know for me, one of my biggest problems is is that I am, I am like dissatisfied with myself because I'm not dissatisfied with myself enough. Like I see myself and go, why aren't you broken? Why aren't you crying out and decrying some of these things you're seeing? Why aren't you doing these things? You know, so I, I, I'm checking. You can't do everything. That's why God calls us to a specific area and he wants us to be committed. We're a body. Everybody takes a certain portion. But there is that point in my life where I'm thinking, you know, I preached on this today. You know, it makes sense. But what about you? You know, and I see a lot of this in here as my own um, uh, what do you want it would be a good word for that it just you know almost a, a deadness towards people who are in pain and people who are hurting and it doesn't mean you're not saved it doesn't mean you're not a biblical Christian it doesn't mean you don't love Christ but there is room for improvement we could do better we could do better I could do better I could do a lot better um, and I pray that you know today after I walk away that I would really really you know bump it up you know and I just thank God for his mercy because I fail here tre tremendously. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, uh, Jeremiah says, and this is where it gets tight because we know that Jeremiah's wife, right, she died, right, and he was never allowed to marry. He was never allowed to have children. He was never allowed to have a family. You know, he was allowed to have posterity, right? So you think about these things where, you know, traumatized life, of Jeremiah, you know, really you could get a sense of, 
you know, he said this. He says, then I said, I will not make mention of him. It seemed here that there was some, there was some um, grievances between him and God because he decides at this point that he's not going to make mention of him again because of what happened to him. His circumstances were going to dictate his love for God and his calling for God were going to be stifled based upon his circumstances. And this can't be. He said that, and then, then he said, I will not make mention of him, nor I'll speak any more in his name. But then he says this, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. You know, and this is, this is the truth of God. God is a persevering God. Right? Our perseverance isn't my perseverance. My sanctification isn't my sanctification. It is God's work completely from beginning to end. Right? He gets all the glory. But here he is passionate about saying, because this happened to me, I'm not going to speak. And then all of a sudden he goes into, but I cannot but help speak. I cannot, I can't stop. No matter what's happened to me, whether I'm in a dungeon rotting alone in the darkness, my family been removed from me, taken away from me. I've lost everything. But it doesn't dictate this, I have to. I mean, think of, think of John the Baptist, right? He was imprisoned, you know, and eventually had his head taken off. But it didn't stop him. He wasn't circumstantial. He's like, oh, I love the attention in the desert. Everyone came out to see me, and I preached this wonderful message, and the, I nailed the Pharisees at that chance. You know, you all seen it, right? It wasn't any of that. It was, he was now placed in a place where he was alone and he knew that it was over at some level. Even the sense where he asked, you know, about whether it was Christ, you know, if this is the one. I mean, you just got to understand people, the, the, the human person, right? I mean, the scriptures don't negate humanity. Christ became a man, right? And he suffered and he died. So we got to look at this and say, man, you know... This is really where the Lord would, would have us to such an extent that no matter what our lives look like, we can't help but speak the truth. It's inside of us, right? It's volcanic. And I like what this says. I like what Abraham Michel, you want to read a good book, it's called The Prophets by Abraham Michel. He writes this, Jeremiah was filled with a blazing passion. And it was this emotional intensity which drove him to dis discharge God's woeful errands. Jeremiah was filled to overflowing with the wrath of God, which he could neither suppress nor contain. The word hema indicating the indignation of God. The prophet was filled with a passion which demanded release. If he tried to contain it, its flame burned within him like a fever. It's a great, it's a great picture. It's not the, it's not the everyday life of a Christian. Don't get me wrong. It's not. I'm not. I'm not charismatic. Um, but here, it's, it's, it's the truth. It's, it's, it's where this is, is, is focused on. You know, it's like, it was a particular calling. God had used him in a marvelous way to such an extent that God removed anything that would hinder this man's work from being finished, even including his family here, right? Including a, a comfortable home and in the, in the, in the, in the nice Christian life. He lost it all for the sake of God. 
and he finished. You read his story to what the Bible gives us. You will see that that man finished strong. And so should we. Similar to Paul in his lament in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He says, for though I preach the gospel. Hear me now. I have nothing to glory of. Here's the point that I want you to hear. He says, for necessity is laid upon me. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Another version says, says it this way. For I preach the gospel. I have nothing to boast of. For I am, listen to this, under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. What is the compulsion that is being dealt here? What, what, is, what is the word saying here? Well, it says this compulsion really is the action, listen closely, or state of forcing or being forced, right, to do something. An irresistible urge to behave in a certain way, especially against one's own conscious wishes. I love the, I love the word here because... It, it, it talks about, this definition talks about being being forced into doing something. You see Jeremiah there was not, at the beginning of that verse, was not too excited to go on anymore with this. But there was something that was in him which shows that he's a true believer that's going to be the driving force of his life. Not his emotions, not his own thinking, right? It's going to be God and the power of God that will dictate and ultimately empower this man to complete his mission. And so it is with all of us. Paul cried out in 2 Corinthians, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us uh, to, to, to go and preach the word. This constrained feeling, I'm constrained to do this. I'm constrained to reach out with God's message to the world. And it's, it's an amazing thought to consider. I mean, Jeremiah uh, was relentless. Uh, he called. He urged his people to repent. And in man's terms, he failed. He failed. I don't think anybody repented. Maybe. I know Baruch was his boy that helped him write things down and, and, and put things down, which is awesome. But I don't really see any instances now. I could be wrong. But from my reading of Jeremiah, I don't see anybody repenting. I see them all being taken off into, into bondage and in captivity. Um, you can, you're more than welcome after the service. You want to correct me on that. It's good. He screamed, he wept, he moaned, and was left with terror in his soul. Utterances denoting the wrath of God, the intent, and the threat of destruction are found more frequently and expressed more strongly in Jeremiah than in any other prophet. And for this reason, Jeremiah has often been called a prophet of wrath. Abraham Heschel. And I believe Jeremiah's boiling point could be summed up into these two points. One would be passionate praying. I think when you have a prayer life that's passionate, what do I mean passionate? Passionate in the sense to where you know God and you actually are excited to be with Him. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing because many times opening your Bible and praying in the morning can seem like getting a tooth pulled, right? The excitement that you have for it, right? You do it out of duty, blah, blah, blah. But there's nice, when you get to the point in your life where you love God, you know God, and you understand at least to the limited amount of knowledge that we have in His Word, right? Um, and you know Him. 
uh, to such an extent where your prayer life is taken on a whole different characteristic altogether. That you're excited to be with God. You know God. You love God. You spend time with Him. You're in His Word, right? And this, I believe, is the ammunition, if, if I could use that word, or this is really the engine which drives the Christian life and allows us to persevere to the end under any other circumstances and anything. So we don't become those who are as Paul said, blown away with every wind of doctrine. We're just all over the place to the point where we shipwreck our faith. His passionate prayer, his passionate praying. Jeremiah was not a popular preacher. His preaching actually got him thrown into prison. He declared that Judah would soon start their 70 long years in captivity and nothing could thwart the hand of God in judgment. But it is here that Jeremiah learned something profound. He learned how to pray. Jeremiah in 33, 1-3 says, While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And this is what the Lord says, He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. This doesn't happen through lifestyle evangelism either. This happens through a dedicated time of knowing God. He's in prison. He probably doesn't have a whole lot of people to talk to. But from his ministry, from the very beginning, God was truly in it. And God spoke to him. And he did call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord did answer him. He was a man of God. He was a man that knew God. He was a man who passionately prayed to the Father. And the Father answered him. He called to God, and which Jeremiah did. And then God says, I will answer you. And the Lord answers Jeremiah's pray, uh, prayer. And God says that he will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And this isn't the great things that many Christians say that this verse means. You hear it all the time, right? Where people use that verse to say, you know, um, God, you know, is, 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 will answer you and he's going to show you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. And they take that as in like, there's going to be a door opened, right? They're always waiting for a, the door to open somewhere, right? And it's this idea that there's going to break free from this misery of the Christian life and they're going to be set free and everything's just going to be great and peachy. That's not this what this verse means at all. And you hear it preached all the time on calendars. and I mean, it's a wonderful verse to read, don't get me wrong. But it's not the intention of Jeremiah's life. Okay, look at his life. He didn't also just get free and live this, you know, happy life and kick his feet up and, you know, sip on tea and see all the beaches of the world. It was... His life was not. He's actually, as I, I believe from reading the scripture, his wife died. He had no family, no posterity. His home was sacked. His people taken into captivity. He was rejected by his own people and eventually thrown into a mud pit, a deep well. Only a deep knowledge of God through prayer and an understanding of God's spoken word were his lifeline and compass to navigate through all of this judgment. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a powerful point there to understand, you know, for all of us. This is um, the Christian life, you know. I hate to say it, man, but the Christian life can be miserable. It can be absolutely, utterly miserable. But you know what doesn't make it miserable? Christ. 
You know what I mean? That see the whole the whole thing is is that no matter what we go through, and I know this sounds cliche because people tell it all the time, but no matter what we go through, there's always the light of Christ, our hope. You know, I always say, whatever pain we're going through, I do know at some point it will end. I know it's going to end at some point. I'm going to die, thank God. There are times where I'm ready to die. You know, I'm thinking, man, as if you start seeing things, just all the here and now, you miss that and you begin to turn to worldly remedies to try to take care of only a remedy that God can take care of. Now, I'm not saying that we're not to utilize all of the interventions that God has given us through common grace, like medicine and all these things. We should embrace these things with discernment, but embrace these things to the glory of God. These things are given to us because God, you know, he's not working like he was working in the book of Acts, right? Um, But here, God is working just as powerfully through his people, and you see his common grace working in all different realms of the culture, doing things to help people. You know, and I think we need to appreciate this because I believe that um, if we don't, then we're anti this, we're anti this, we're anti this, we're everything. You're anti everything, right? The devil's under every little rock, right? Every movie, every story, there's a devil in there. It's a, it, we've got to get free of that kind of thinking. Not that we shouldn't use discernment and use much godliness and making decisions on everything we do, everything we view, everything we listen to. But at the end of the day, we are still believers in Christ, and our stability is recognized only in Christ. Not in the music, not in the movie, and all these things. We can watch these things with a discerning heart and understand this is how the world behaves. They talk like that. I don't, right? Some movies out there, I try to run them through VidAngel, but they just, VidAngel doesn't have them all. So sometimes we just have to do this, hit the fast forward, you know, and not very often in my home because I have a house full of kids and, and my, my wife doesn't really care for any of that kind of stuff anyway, but, which is a good thing. Yeah, she's a very godly, godly, godly woman, so, and I love that, you know, she keeps me in check too, you know, she keeps me in check a lot. So anyway, um... Charles Spurgeon says when, he, when he's talking about neglected prayer, he says it's well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. Think about that for a moment. Neglected prayer is the seedbed of all, all, or the birthplace of all evil. Isn't that true? When you don't pray, you get out of the prayer closet, you find yourself acting just like everybody else. I've done that. You know what I mean? I'm not praying like I should, not in the Bible like I should. Next thing you know, I'm like, oh, that song doesn't sound as bad as I thought, you know? No, you're not in the Word. You're not in prayer. You need to get back on your knees and get back into the Word of God, which, by God's grace, He does that to me, and I'm grateful for it. But I'm just like everybody else. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I'm immune to the world's devices, right? That's why we need to pray for each other so we don't slip and fall into these things, right? Uh, So anyway, number two, passionate preaching. I'm going to finish with this, hopefully quickly. Passionate preaching. I mean... His passionate preaching, I think, was a direct correlation with his passionate praying. That's why I put these together. It's even today, right? You guys know this well enough to where you understand, you know, if you're in the prayer closet, you know, tell God what you want privately, right? Not in front of everybody else. Praying's good with everybody corporately. But when you're in the, in the, in the prayer closet with the Lord, right, you know, God will show up 
and answer your prayers outwardly in other ways, right? So, and it's true, I've noticed that too. And I, when my prayer life's really good, um, not that God's given me rewards for my prayer life, but God is, I'm talking to God, and I'm different. Even the way I respond to my wife, I respond to my kids, respond to anybody, it's all based on my prayer life. You know what I mean? It's like you see someone calling, you're like, oh, not that person again. You know? Or when you're in prayer, you're like, oh, what if that person needs? You know what I mean? It's just a two different spectrum. You know, you can be praying a lot and still say that. Because there's some people that are draining and you just don't want to pick up the phone. <laughs> be honest, right? So we saw through one through four, there was a, super, a superficial trust in the temple and external religion. And the Bible says the word came to Jeremiah, the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Now tell him where to go. And proclaim there this word. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. When I hear that, it drives me nuts when I hear that. It even gets on my nerves when I hear that, right? And he's warning them. He's warning, warning them at the gate before, wait a minute, before you enter the gates, amend your ways. Here's your chance, your one and only chance. And I love how God, because that's where like, you know, all the, the big exchanges and things were, were, were even spoken to by the prophets, to the people. Everything, everything, the magistrates, everything happened at the gates. The gates symbolized authority, right? So when you're at the gates, he was delivering a message to the people that they must hear what the Lord has said. In Jeremiah 26, it says, Also is Jeremiah preaching at the temple gate in the first year of the reign of Jehoiakim in a sermon with many of the same themes. Some think this is the same sermon as in uh, Jeremiah um, 2.6. Others think it's an earlier delivery of a similar sermon delivered in the sample place. Uh, I'm sorry, in the same place. And Jeremiah 26, 8 through 11 indicates that after that sermon, Jeremiah was attacked and threatened with death. So, I mean, obviously you can see at this point where if we could use the word interchangeably, the church wanted to kill him. The people of God wanted him dead. You think about that, right? I'll tell you something. The most dangerous person to confront is a person that's deeply in sin and won't repent. That loves that sin to such an extent that he's not willing to let it go and it's his and the moment you pull and tug on his toy, he's going to come unglued like a child. They're the most dangerous people. They could, if this child was big enough, he'd kill you. And it's the same thing. When you, when you confront somebody in their sin and something that they deeply love or deeply involved in and you confront them, watch their reaction. That'll tell you a lot about how the rest of the conversation is going to go. How they respond. Do they respond in humility or do they respond in aggr with aggression you know, and want to kill you? And, that, and that's... No, they're probably not going to kill you, but I'm going to tell you something right now. They would like to if they could. So we have to understand the nature of our message that you're not going to be a people pleaser if you're going to be a Christian. If you are, you're not a real one. That's the truth. We're not people pleasers. We're not called by God to be people pleasers. We're called by God to do what he has commanded us to do. He gave Jeremiah a specific place to be and the specific message he was supposed to speak. Jesus gave us 
as his people, a command. Uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's Mark 16, 15. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. And he goes on to say, you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake. And there's different portions of scripture that declare that reality as that we're the aroma of death to the world, right? We're a sweet incense to the people of God. There is a sense to where our message is not accepted by the world. And they will retaliate in such ways. In other countries, they will burn you. They will kill you. In the past, that's what they did. Just recently, we had a brother out preaching on a street corner in Arizona, and someone drove by him and shot him in the head. Knocked him right off his ladder, of course. And he's still in critical condition. Street preacher, godly man, reform boy. He's really good. And I was really... uh, I was really disheartened and sad. And I, and I know we, we say, well, this, you know, these things happen around the world to other people, but this stuff never never happens to us, right? And you got some nutcase walking in our church wanting to shoot everybody down, right? And then what happened? What happened? We should expect not someone we should expect people coming through our door and doing that in our day. We're living in a day where that possibility could happen. Right? It could could happen. You say, well, uh, have not you read the news? I mean, there are people this day and age shooting each other up, mass murderers. I'm reading about one almost, seems like every week, another one, to the point where I've just lost interest. Isn't that awful? Like there's so many of them, I can't keep track. Was it this time? Did you hear about the guy getting shot at the mall? Uh, I heard about 10 people getting shot at the mall in 10 different malls. Which one are you talking about? Like it's getting to a point in our day where it's getting that bad where a street preacher is going to take a bullet to his forehead for preaching the word of God, right? This is where we're at. And if you don't think your little life can be disrupted by any kind of persecution, you're wrong or you're not a believer. That's true. Or you read the scriptures wrong. Because the Bible says you will suffer. Jesus said you will suffer. Paul said you will suffer. The prophet suffered. Even Jesus brings this up. He talks to the Pharisees. Your ancestors murdered them, killed them. It's very same today. You have a message that will get you killed. You have the message that will get you killed. You do. But you have the message of life. Whether that means you lose your life or keep your life, you have the only message that confronts the world's darkness with any kind of hope at all. But they're not always going to be happy about it. And they can retaliate in ways that you would never expect. But be ready if that ever happens. Jeremiah's preaching was passionate. He needed plenty of courage and boldness to do this work as we do professor john murray once wrote to me preaching without passion is not preaching at all john wesley said catch on fire and people will come to watch you burn leonard ravenhill once said there's nothing more unsuitable in such heavenly business as to be dull let people see that you are in earnest men will not cast away their dearest pleasures by a drowsy request Richard Baxter said, I preached as a dying man to dying men as if I would never preach again. I'm not going to get into the origin. I was going to get into the origin of, of passion and what it means and where it comes from. And um, I was going to kind of ex- tell you a little bit how um, the Puritan William Perkins writes um, that, you know, the same way God prepares you for eternity and makes you a new creation is the same process he will use us at times preparing us for ministry. The same 
trauma, the same almost destructive nature to crush us and shatter us in a million pieces so that we can be ready to be able to confront the work that he's called us to do. He said it's very similar. William Perkins, which I absolutely love him in his, in his writings very much. I would like to just finish with this story. I know a lot of you have heard this story before, but it's so powerful and it's worth repeating. It's really, it's really about one of my favorite uh, missionaries and pastors and preachers is Richard Wormbrand. And he's the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs who spent 14 years in a Romanian prison and much of it in solitary confinement. His crime was taken a stand for Christ. It all happened at a pastor's conference in 1949 during the communist takeover in Romania. Sabina, Richard's wife, sat next to her husband as one Christian leader after the next, walked onto the stage and blasphemed the name of Christ. Caving into the, the demands of the communist officials sitting in the front row, her heart began to burn. And I love this. This is, your, this is a godly woman right here. Her heart began to burn within her. She was so passionately in love with Jesus Christ and could not stand to hear such things spoken about him by God's professed people. She turned to her husband and she said, Will you not wipe the spit from the face of Christ? Richard then pointed to the communist officers in the front row. He said, Listen, if I stand up and speak against their agenda, they'll kill me. Sabina did not even hesitate for one second. She said, I would rather be married to a dead man than to a coward. It was the infusion of strength that Richard needed. He rose to his feet, sparked by the passion of his wife, and thunderously spoke truth in the midst of lies. Off he went to a Romanian dungeon without his boy and without his wife. I would rather be married to a dead man than to a coward. We need more wives like this, right? I know. I mean, I believe the wives in our congregation are very similar to this. But we need to pray for fervency, brothers and sisters. And I want to finish with this. The Puritan William Gurnell says to every preacher, Furnish thyself with arguments from the promises of God to enforce thy prayers and make them prevail with God. The promises are the ground of faith, and faith, when strengthened, will make thee fervent. And such fervency will speed returns with victory from the field of prayer. The mightier a man is in the word, the more mighty he will be in prayer. Preach with passion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I thank you that you have given us ears to hear. And Lord, through my much ramblings up here, I pray, Father, that there was something here that was from you that would land on the hearts of your people. Be glorified, Lord. Be glorified in moving upon us in such a way that we'd be moved to want simply, simply, just to get to know you better and to be known by you, Lord. And that would thrust us out into this nasty world, Lord, with the truth, the gospel of truth, that we would be caught on fire with passionate communication 
to all those that we come in contact with about our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.